0: invite you to turn in your copy of the scripture for the last time in this study of Mark's gospel to the Gospel of Mark. and uh, we're going to be finishing it up after having been in this gospel since September of 2022. Uh, we're looking at chapter 15 verses 42. And we'll read through to chapter 16. The kids are with us uh, in the service this morning. And uh, if you have your child next to you, it would be good just for you maybe to point your finger along in the scripture so that your child can follow along with us as well. But if you're new with us, I really do encourage you to have your Bible open. Uh, we like to just work our way through the text of scripture in our time together, so uh, keep it open. Let me begin reading for a cha- starting in chapter 15, starting in verse 42. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, as we look at this great account of the resurrection, we pray that you would encourage us with this great hope and that you would give us confidence that our Jesus truly is risen from the dead, and in him we can place all our hope and trust. We we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The, the resurrection is the most amazing event that ever happened in the entire world. And it, it is the great linchpin proof that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is and who he claimed to be, that he is the son of God, he is the Lord of all, he is the one in whom we can find salvation, the savior for all who would trust in him. Christians find great hope and great assurance that the gospel is absolutely true because Jesus really, literally raised from the dead. Uh, the, the resurrection is actually so foundational and crucial to Christianity itself that Paul tells us in the scripture reading that Don read for us this morning in First Corinthians 15, that if the resurrection did not happen, then Christianity is a complete farce and we've wasted our time. You know, getting up this morning uh, to, to rush and get the kids ready to, to go to church and to sing praises to Jesus and to read about him it's all worthless if in fact Jesus was not raised but Mark records for us that absolutely we can have full confidence that the resurrection is true and his message is plain Jesus is risen go and tell jesus is risen go and tell now of course the resurrection is uh, something that many have struggled with throughout the ages even to our own day it's it's hard for people to believe that jesus really could have risen from the dead For instance, one of our founding fathers, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Uh, if you don't know this, he was an agnostic and he was a rationalist. And he uh, made his own version of the gospels and what he did is he, he compiled all the gospel records together and he cut out all of the details of Jesus' miracles and his gospel ends by Jesus being laid in the tomb and then it's done. He could not bring himself to believe that Jesus truly could have risen from the dead. That may actually be you here this morning. You may be wrestling with the same thing. And uh, as Mark records, the first thing I think that we can see from his record is, first of all, that the resurrection of Jesus can be trusted. It is something that absolutely can be trusted. Now, many uh, have tried to argue against the resurrection of Jesus and actually most strongly from this gospel itself. The skeptics, uh, those who are antagonistic against Christianity, love to use Mark 16 as an example of why the resurrection is not something that can be believed. Uh, You say, well, why is that? Well, because of the reality of verses 9 through 20. Uh, Did you notice that we didn't continue reading? Did you notice we stopped at verse 8 and didn't read on from verses 9 through 20? Uh, What are we to do with verses 9 through 20? If you have a a reliable, good translation of the Bible, you most likely have an editorial note between verses 8 and 9. How many of you have such a note in your Bible? Most of you, okay? Most of you have that note that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Chapter 16, verse 9 through 20. Now we as Christians need to understand why that note is there, and we need to understand what to do with that note for several reasons. Uh, First of all, as I already said, uh, probably as um, you've had conversations with your unbelieving skeptic friends, they may have pointed to this very text of scripture and said, see, look, the Bible is not reliable. Because there are things that maybe shouldn't be in there. It's clear that this is a corrupt book. How could you, as an intelligent, smart person of the 21st century, really put your faith in a book that so clearly has errors in it? Now, we need to be absolutely confident that the scripture is wholly inerrant, that it is authoritative, and we need to be able to make a defense and have confidence in this. Uh, here at Grace, one of, our, um, one of our core values is the Bible Our authority, we stand on the absolute reliability of the scripture. Our statement of faith uh, as a Karis Fellowship Church Network says this about our belief in the scripture, God's inspiration and superintendence of the writing of every word of the Bible guarantees that what was written is his word and therefore authoritative, true, and without error. But here's the important qualification in the original manuscripts so that when we're talking about the inspiration of scripture we're talking about the copies that the biblical authors themselves originally wrote down now of course the problem is do we have those original manuscripts no but does that mean that our translations are not translations that we can have absolute confidence in no We can have absolute confidence that what we have in our hands as our Bibles is close to exact, if not exact, to the originals themselves. And this really gets down to the question of how did we get these Bibles that we're holding? How can we be sure that when we open them up to read them privately, we're reading God's Word? And when we're standing behind a pulpit, we can be absolutely assured that we are preaching what God intended us to preach. It comes down to understanding how we got our Bibles. It comes down actually to the abundance of manuscript copies that we have of the New Testament. Now, I want to put some tools in your tool bag this morning. You're going to have to kind of enter into the seminary classroom with me just for a moment. I promise this won't be long. But for us to understand what we do with sections of scripture like this. Um, Rebecca Schiffer on Friday, when I told her you know, what I was planning to do, she said, oh, it's going to be one of those Sundays, huh? <laughs> Yes, it's going to be one of those Sundays, because I want us to be confident in what is going on here. First of all, what do we have when it comes to manuscripts of the New Testament? We have over 23,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. Now to put that into perspective. That is over 3,000% more manuscripts than any other altogether of uh, ancient literature that we have in manuscript copy. The second uh, highest um, piece of ancient literature that we have is Homer's Iliad, and we only have about 600 available copies of that, 23,000 compared to 600. That's huge. And more, uh, even more than that, these manuscripts were meticulously copied to the point that tradition says when copyists knew that they were making, that they had made a mistake in copying down uh, the scripture, they would stop no matter how far along in the copy they had gotten, they would stop and burn that manuscript and start all over again because they understood how serious of a task they had before them in preserving God's word. And what's more, these 23,000 manuscripts of the New Testament are nearly identical with one another in every detail, except for fine little grammatical mistakes that really do not change the message of the the scripture at all. Now, of that 23,000 manuscripts, there are roughly 1,600 manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. That's quite a lot of uh, manuscripts for Mark. And of the two oldest manuscripts that we have of Mark's Gospel, dating all the way back to the fourth century, the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. Now, the rest of the manuscripts do. But what's interesting is even those manuscripts have little marginal notes that the copyist made saying and qualifying that most likely uh, this is not original to Mark's hand, and that these were later editions. Uh, the most conservative of scholars therefore believe that most likely Mark intended and ended his gospel with verse eight, and that uh, verses 9 through 20 were later editions by the copyists. Now, the question becomes then, is that a problem for us? Uh, does this mean that, that our scripture is tainted in some way? Well, no, not at all. Uh, most likely what the commentators were doing was they, they were jolted just as we are with Mark's ending. And they thought, let's fill in the rest of the details that we have from the other three uh, uh, gospels to tie up the loose ends of Mark's gospel and to to provide helpful commentary to those who would be under discipleship and tutelage of Mark's gospel. And of course, uh, we don't have to worry for two reasons. Number one, the alternate ending does not negate any doctrine or any of the other historical facts that we have in the rest of the scripture, and also it doesn't add any new doctrine nor any new historical facts found elsewhere in the other gospels or in the rest of the New Testament. Now, I, 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 was, I didn't really know. I was puzzled at how to handle this this morning for you all, and I was tempted to not handle it at all. And I called one of my mentors who's much smarter than me has been a pastor for a longer time and um, has preached through the gospel of Mark. And he had a great quote that he told me that I'll just quote directly for you, and I thought this was helpful. He said, when it comes to the New Testament, we don't lack any of the inspired content. We have 100% of the inspired content of the New Testament, plus more. He said, we've got 102% of the New Testament. What we need to do is wrestle with what that 2% is. What's the big point? What am I trying to say? Why all of this? The resurrection of Jesus can be trusted because the Bible can be trusted. Every time that people have tried to uh, show that this is an unreliable book or throw accusations against it time and time again, it has stood the test and held to be absolutely reliable. The resurrection of Jesus can be trusted because the Bible can be trusted. But Mark also shows us that the resurrection of Jesus can be trusted because Jesus' death and burial is undeniable. His death and burial is undeniable. Uh, There are all sorts of theories uh, from skeptics about what happened to Jesus' body after the crucifixion. Uh, Three of the most famous ones are number one, um, uh, perhaps Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but people thought that he died and somehow he was resuscitated in the tomb and he himself got himself out of the tomb but never really died. Uh, Another theory is that there was some funny business and that someone vandalized the tomb and stole the body of Jesus. And the apostles and disciples mistook that for his resurrection. The third uh, uh, popular theory is that the uh, disciples somehow in their grief and in their you know, exasperation didn't actually see the resurrected Jesus, but somehow were just hallucinating that they saw Jesus. But Mark's record blows holes in every single one of those theories, if it was indeed a lie that Jesus rose from the dead, the careful details, the historical minute uh, carefulness that Mark uh, inserts in his account of the resurrection would not be there. Just look at these details. First of all, uh, it was a respectable man who took responsibility for Jesus' burial. Take a look at verse 43 of chapter 15. We were introduced to this man last week. His name's Joseph of Arimathea. And he was a respected member of the council, of the Sanhedrin. Uh, He was one who actually had quite a lot to lose in identifying himself with Jesus and taking responsibility for his burial. He was risking his reputation among the Sanhedrin, and he was risking his reputation among society at large uh, with um, trying to uh, take responsibility for a man who had been crucified. But even furthermore, not only did a respectable man take responsibility for his burial, but Jesus' death was verified, and his burial approved by none other but the highest of Roman officials. Take a look at verse 44 and 45. In verse 44 and 45 of chapter 15, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And because he was surprised, maybe even skeptical that Joseph was telling the truth, what did he do? Verse 44, he summoned the centurion who had been there at the crucifixion and he verified. He asked him whether Jesus was already dead. Verse 45, when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, if you were trying to tell a lie and fabricate a story, would you include the highest of high political officials in the day? Probably not. People could have gone right to Pilate. People could have gone right to the centurion and said, did this really happen? And Pilate, of course, would have had to say yes. That's exactly, exactly what took place. But thirdly, uh, Jesus' burial also was seen by witnesses who could verify the facts. In verse 46 and 47, Joseph uh, buries uh, Jesus' body, lays it in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. In Jesus' day, these stones were massive stones that would seal the entrance of the tomb to keep uh, robbers and thieves from going in. It would have taken a large group of very strong men to roll that stone away. And in verse 47, we read that two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Josie, saw this firsthand, saw this burial process. The resurrection of Jesus can be trusted because we can trust the Bible. The resurrection of Jesus can be trusted because his burial and death are undeniable. And thirdly, Mark is showing us the resurrection of Jesus can be trusted because of the realism of the resurrection account. If a story is too good to be true, it's probably because it's not true. Uh, one of my favorite accounts in the Old Testament is Aaron with the golden calf. Do you remember how that story went? Um, Moses comes down from the mountain and he's, he's angry, He's so angry that they would create this golden calf. And he says to Aaron, what's going on here? How did this take place? And do you remember what Aaron said? Well, it was the strangest thing, uh, Moses. Um, everyone just kind of gave me their jewelry and gold and, and we decided to throw it in the fire. And wouldn't you know, out popped this golden calf. It's, it's a great mystery. I don't know how it took place. Well, of course, that is an absolute foolish story. But when we look at the record here of the resurrection, we're seeing absolute realism. When we take a look at chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to women who are anything but ideal candidates for a fabricated lie. First of all, women were not seen in Jesus' day as reliable witnesses. Uh, It's not like the 21st century here in America where men and women are seen on the same plane. In Jesus' day, women were not seen as reliable witnesses. If this was false, surely they would have said that men were the ones to discover the empty tomb. But furthermore, these three women are not a picture of faith and hope and great expectation in Jesus' resurrection. These are grieving women. These are despairing women. Take a look at verse 2. Excuse me, verse 1. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had put all their faith and trust in Jesus as the one that they were sure was the Messiah. And now he was dead. And they thought, all is lost. We made the big, biggest mistake ever, placing our hope in Jesus. It's all over. All our hopes are dashed. They didn't believe. In fact, they, they were not going to a tomb uh, that they thought would they'd find a risen Jesus. They were going to a tomb that they thought they'd find a decaying body. They were going to anoint his body as an act of love and remembrance, probably to process their grief. They were going to what they were sure would be a dead body. In fact, in verse 3, I love this note of realism in verse 3. They were saying to one another, as they get on the way, they realize there's a little hole in their plan. Uh, who's going to roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. Uh, Ladies, we're not thinking clearly when we get to the tomb, how are we actually going to get in? They weren't expecting a resurrected Jesus. Despite Jesus repeatedly saying all throughout the gospel record in chapter 8, verse 31, when he said, I will die, but I will rise again on the third day. In chapter 9, verse 31, he said the same thing again I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. Chapter 10, verse 34, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. And they just did not believe. In fact, even as they enter the empty tomb and they meet the angel, they are terrified and they run away and they are unable to do what they are commanded to do by the angel. It's just so real. If it was a fabricated story, if they were trying to make it, uh, make it up, don't you think they would have said, you know, it was the disciples? The disciples, we were so sure that Jesus had said that he was going to rise on the third day, and we had absolute confidence. So that morning, we got up bright and early, and we went to the tomb, and we knew for sure that it was going to be empty, and lo and behold, it was, and we went out, and we were bold and told the whole world that amazing message. But no, the realism is we thought it was over. We thought we were going to anoint a dead body. And in fact, when we discovered that Jesus really had risen from the dead, we were so afraid and so faithless that at first we didn't actually go and do what the angel had told us to do. You take all those facts together, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the undeniability of Jesus' death and burial, and the realism of the resurrection account, the resurrection of Jesus can be trusted. As we're being asked from the scripture to believe in this amazing, supernatural, miraculous event, God is not asking us to check our brains at the door, but we can see the absolute believability and trustworthiness of this account. J. Gresham Machin, great defender of the faith in the early 1900s, said this great quote. He said, the belief of the disciples in the resurrection was due simply to the fact of the resurrection. Those disciples came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead for the simple reason that Jesus had risen from the dead. They saw him, they met him, and they knew it to be true. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. The resurrection can be trusted. And Mark goes on also to show us that the resurrection of Jesus is our hope. The resurrection of Jesus is our hope. We find our hope in the great words of the angel there in verse six. If you take a look at verse six, what are the first words out of the angel's mouth as he addresses these women who were full of alarm? Do not be alarmed, he says. Your Jesus, your savior, your Lord was crucified. But he is risen again from the dead, just as he said he would. He's victorious. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And what's more, verse 7, where can you find him? Go, tell his disciples, he says, and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Jesus, the risen Jesus, where is he making a beeline for? His heart is so full of grace and love and mercy that in his resurrected state, he's making a beeline for the very ones who betrayed him in his moment of greatest need. He's making his way to the ones he loves, even the one who denied him three times. He is making his way to show his grace and his mercy. I love this little note in verse seven. Did you catch it? The angel says, go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Remember we've been saying now for a few weeks, Mark most likely got his account straight from Peter. Don't you just wonder as they were sitting down together and Peter was sharing with Mark, do you wonder if maybe Peter's eyes got a little misty? if Maybe his voice quivered a little bit as he smiled and he said, you know, Mark, Jesus' love was so great for me. His mercy and his grace was so great for me that he made sure that the angel told the women to let me know, let me, the one who denied him three times, to even let me know that he wants me, that he still loves me, that he wanted to make his way towards me you may be here this morning and you wonder, could Jesus really love me? Me who has denied him so many times, where it seems like my relationship with him is just an absolute train wreck. Could he really want me? Jesus is the one who wants the Peters of the world. The resurrected Jesus is just on full on pursuit for sinners to come and have fellowship with Him. He doesn't wait for them to come to Him, He immediately makes His way towards them. His resurrection is the great proof that God is pleased with the sacrifice that He has made, that our sins really have been dealt with, and that death really has been conquered on our behalf. The resurrection gives us hope for the newness of life right now through our faith in Him. For eternal life with him after death, and for resurrected bodies, when he returns again, I'm going to get my hair back. It's going to be great. (laughs) This great truth, we find everything we need in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Paul said in Romans 6, chapter 5, verse 8, what does it mean? What is the significance of his death and his resurrection to us? He says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you understand that when you place your faith in Christ, something extraordinary happened to you? Your old self of sin died with him, buried, gone forever. You say goodbye, and a new life occurs, a whole new identity, a whole new creation, a redeemed person, a forgiven person, a justified person, a sanctified person, a glorified person, all in the Lord Jesus Christ, united with him in his resurrection. This is the answer to all of our needs to place our faith in him. The resurrection of Jesus can be trusted. The resurrection of Jesus is our hope. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus must be proclaimed. Why did Mark end his gospel in the way that he did? Take a look at verse 8. Verse 8, his original ending, this is how he chose to end. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." It's so abrupt, isn't it? And I think intentionally so. Mark ends his gospel with a cliffhanger. I hate cliffhangers. You know, when you're watching your favorite series, you've been invested in it for years, and the last episode, the very final episode, they end on a cliffhanger? I hate that. But it does something to us, doesn't it? It catches us off guard. And that is exactly what Mark wants us to do, I think. He actually, I think, wants us to be disappointed with the ending. I think maybe he even put the last period on his manuscript with a little bit of a smile, like, oh, this is a good ending. Why? Because we as the readers are to see ourselves in these women. These women at first were paralyzed by their fear and unable to go out and share the best amazing news in the entire world. But of course, we know from the rest of the story and the rest of church history that eventually those women did overcome their fear. They did open up their mouth. Their faith in Christ overcame their fear and they went and told the news and the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. And now we as the readers have to say, are we going to overcome our fear? Are we going to go and tell this great news out of faith in the Lord Jesus? Mark ends his gospel with the great commission by omission the Great Commission by omission. He wants us to be so jolted by the women here that we say, no, no, it can't end like that. If they're not going to go say something, then I, the reader, I am going to go. I'm going to go proclaim this news to the ends of the earth. This is the great news that has been entrusted to us that we might share with the nations. What is this message? What is the message that we are to share? Well, it takes us all the way back to the beginning of Mark. Why don't we end our series of Mark at the beginning? I invite you to turn back to chapter one. What is this great message that we have been given to share since Jesus has been raised from the dead? It's the very message that Jesus himself proclaimed when he started his ministry. In chapter one, starting in verse 14, chapter one, verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here it is. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is our message to the nations. Now that Jesus is raised, now that he has ascended and he has entrusted this message, it's the message that he preached. The kingdom of God is coming. And the king himself is Jesus who came and lived the life that we could not live, the perfect life. He died the death for sin that we might not have to die, but that our penalty, the penalty of our sin might be paid. And he rose again from the dead so that we might have newness of life and eternal life in him by conquering the grave. And how do you get into this kingdom? How can you be sure that this great good news is something you've embraced? Twofold response. Repent and believe first we repent we turn away from all that displeases God and we say I leave that behind now I want to live a life that is pleasing to you. I want to live a life of obedience and then we believe we believe in the work of Jesus sufficient for our salvation the great good news of the gospel. Just as Jesus goes on to say in chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. This is what Mark wants us to see as we've tracked our whole way through his gospel. He wrote this so that we might look at the life that Jesus lived, that we might behold the death that Jesus died, that we might be overwhelmed with the power of his resurrection. And that we might actually become one of his followers, take up our own cross, deny ourselves and follow him and pick up the message ourselves and go and proclaim to the world that Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. And because of that, we have all the hope we possibly can have in the gospel message. Well, that's the gospel of Mark, friends. Was it a good study? Let's pray.